Hello, welcome to this audio recording of articles we publish on warhornmedia.com. This is episode 95, and the title is Wheaton College's Public Denunciation of Former President J. Oliver Buswell Jr. It's by Tim Bailey. The date is September 20, 2023. A little note before reading this article. It's long. It has a lot of quotations. I'll try to make that clear to you. There are also a number of footnotes, some of which are actually quite important. I will not be reading them, but you can go online and see the footnotes because they are sources for Wheaton College's document. And as I said, some of the content of those footnotes is pivotal. Last Friday at 4.31 p.m. Eastern Time, Wheaton College released a 122-page report, the center of which is a denunciation of J. Oliver Buswell, Jr., who served as Wheaton's president from 1926 to 1940. Their report was written and signed by an entity called the, quote, Historical Review Task Force, unquote, which two years ago had been appointed by Wheaton's Board of Trustees acting on the request of current president, Phil Riken. The task force's 15 members included representatives from the trustees, staff, students, faculty, and alumni. They were assisted by two, quote, research assistants, unquote, and one, quote, archivist, unquote. The most prominent individual on the task force, his name fittingly appearing top left of the membership list was Wheaton Board of Trustees member Daryl Bach of Dallas Theological Seminary. The task force report was released last Friday afternoon through a link in Wheaton's student newspaper titled The Wheaton Record. The link worked at first, but by the following Tuesday morning, September 19, 2023, the link was dead. The record made the college's announcement under the headline, quote, Historical Race Review Announces Library Name Change Laments College's Past Racism, unquote. The secondary headline read, quote, The report chronicled 140 years of Wheaton history regarding racial and ethnic minorities and issued new institutional commitments, unquote. The record prefaced the article with this italicized statement, quote, In light of the facts brought forth by the Historical Race Task Force report, the record acknowledges the instances of racism in its own institutional history, and we repent of our historical predecessors' complicity in perpetuating racism in the campus culture, unquote. Who was it specifically who was perpetuating racism at Wheaton? J. Oliver Buswell, Jr. Wheaton's library is named Buswell Library, and thus the headline, Historical Race Review, announces library name change. 
From the task force document, quote, the trustees will instruct the administration to remove President James Oliver Buswell Jr.'s name from the Wheaton College Library and, quote, as a public acknowledgement of our collective grief and institutional repentance over the rejection of black applicants, we will remove the name Buswell from signs and other public descriptions where it is used as the present name of Wheaton's library. Unquote. The public release last Friday of the task force's report was prefaced by a two-page introductory letter signed by Wheaton's Board of Trustees. The trustees state it is their, quote, biblical hope, which, quote, compels them, quote, to share the findings of the Historical Review Task Force, unquote. They indicate they, quote, commissioned their task force, quote, to study the history and legacy of Wheaton College from 1860 to 2000 with respect to race relations, unquote. Why the trustees fenced off the past 20 years from their search for racism within their campus community is baffling. Possibly their intent was not to complicate the work by requiring the task force to investigate themselves, or the trustees who appointed them, or the president who requested the investigation in the first place, Reichen took office in 2010. The heart of the task force's justification for denouncing Buswell is found on pages 49 to 51. So with my comments interspersed, the text reads as follows, quote, Whether the declining matriculation of black students prior to the Buswell presidency trend was the result of intent or circumstance is difficult to say, but it is most probably the latter. I comment most probably the latter. With this exculpatory comment, Jonathan Blanchard's son, Charles, is spared denunciation, despite his presiding over decades of black enrollment figures indistinguishable from those of his successor, J. Oliver Buswell. Back to their text. For one thing, it was 1930 before the college's standard application for admission asked applicants to indicate their race, so it is not at all clear how the college could have preemptively excluded black applicants, even had it wished to do so. I comment, notice that little word, it. Thus, it is the college, an institution, not a person. Here, the trustees' task force denies Charles Blanchard's individual responsibility, assigning the decision not to inquire concerning the race of their applicants to the college rather than the president. But when it comes to President Buswell, it's all about him, not any it, but that single individual, J. Oliver Buswell, Jr. In his inaugural address as Wheaton's new president, Buswell ended with this commendation of his predecessor in the presidency, Charles Blanchard. Buswell said this, quote, Charles Albert Blanchard was a boy when this institution was founded, became its president in 1882, and never missed a commencement until this one. Through nearly a half a century, he bore the burdens and guided the affairs of the college. He was literally one college president in a thousand to keep a straight course 
without deviating from the evident truth of the historical Christian faith. The simple fact that through the past generation, Wheaton has remained an accredited college and at the same time kept true to distinctly Christian standards of faith and practice is a monument of inestimable significance, unquote. We can imagine a candid conversation between Presidents Buswell and Charles Blanchard. Buswell, what was your black student enrollment? Blanchard, through my years, we had close to none. One or two here and there. Buswell, did you feel that was satisfactory? Blanchard, of course not. Buswell, do you have any advice? Blanchard, well, it's difficult. First, our natural constituency is the North, not the South. So black applicants are few and far between. Then there are the students' parents who worry their daughters might get involved with a colored man. Finally, you have some trustees who are dead set against any interracial fraternizing and would prefer we not accept any black applicants at all. It's a sad state of affairs. Buswell. I'm not surprised, but I'll do what I can. My plan is to get the trustees to accept the adoption of a policy so that Wheaton accepts black applicants. Still, speaking candidly, if I were black, I'd go somewhere else where I'd be more accepted by the parents and student body. Blanchard. Sad, but true. Buswell. If I need some help, I trust you're willing. Blanchard. Of course, I'll be praying for you. No one reading the task force's report would be surprised to find a transcript of such a conversation between Charles Blanchard and his successor, J. Oliver Buswell. Yet here we are, mired in a blame game constructed upon prognostications created to fill the gap left by the absence of objective evidence. Wheaton's task force, as much as it admits it, And then again from the task force report, quote, it is highly unlikely that the college could have ever had a much larger number of black students during the early 1920s without some sort of monumental recruitment drive, which it had neither the personnel nor the financial resources to undertake, unquote. Note the 20s they refer to were mostly Blanchard. And the subject of the statement is it, once again, the college. And then a quote again from the task force report. According to Hamilton, even though the college was drawing students from more and more states as late as 1920, it was still the case that more than nine-tenths of its student body came from the Northeast and Midwest. In sum, on the eve of the Buswell presidency, the college's applicant pool consisted predominantly of Northern fundamentalists and the number of Northern African-American fundamentalists with the educational background and financial resources to attend college was a slender demographic indeed, unquote. Why did they say, quote, on the eve of the Buswell presidency, unquote? Did something radical happen which changed Wheaton's applicant pool the year 1926 that Buswell assumed the presidency? 
Note the Ollie Ollie infreeze being tossed in the direction of the hallowed Blanchards. Then picking up the report again, quote, In some, when placed in a broader context, it is misleading to characterize the absence of black students at Wheaton College during the presidency of J. Oliver Buswell as a dramatic reversal, as one study insists, unquote. Here we observe a faint hinting at objectivity. Maybe President Buswell wasn't so bad after all. Picking up the report again. Granted, during the nearly 14 years of Buswell's presidency, the typical number of black students enrolled in any given year had been zero. But during the final 14 years of Charles Blanchard's presidency, the typical number of black students enrolled in any given year had been only one. Unquote. The difference between President Charles Blanchard being absolved and President Buswell being denounced is Blanchard presiding over a, quote, typical number of unquote, one black student, and Buswell over a, quote, typical number, unquote, of no black students. Great matters swing on small hinges. Also note the word typical. Were there years when Blanchard didn't even have one black student? Were there years when Buswell had one black student? If so, who is better and who is worse? The task force is betting on readers buying their distinction between none and one within a student body of hundreds. Meanwhile, they admit that more than a century later, the numbers are exceedingly hard to get at. Good records weren't kept, you know. Shortly into the report, the task force mentions the challenges they faced in their attempts at getting at any hard evidence or facts. These years included this period of Blanchard the father, but more importantly, Blanchard the son's 43-year presidency. The report continues, quote, For the decades 1860 to 1930, official trustee minutes are sparse and formulaic and offer little insight into programmatic developments at the college. Student files are scarce prior to 1920, and enrollment statistics are even scarcer. Our task force was often left to make inferences about race relations on Wheaton's campus. Our report includes select accounts of race-related incidents on campus, often from a single source, that demonstrate a specific attitude toward students of color. This evidence, however, is anecdotal and suggestive rather than definitive. Beyond the significant number of records held in the college archives, Accessing them proved highly challenging, unquote. Such admissions pop up throughout their report. For instance, this admission appears in the text just a few pages after their indictment of Buswell for what they present as his own responsibility for racist admission policies. The indictment, which they use to justify their denunciation of him and removal of his name from the campus and library. Their report continues, It is far more difficult 
to speak with confidence about change and continuity regarding race relations at Wheaton College during these Buswell years. During the Buswell presidency, the task force faced the same challenge for these years as it did for the Blanchard administrations, a dearth of surviving evidence specifically delineating policies, programs, and practices relating to race relations, Although it is possible that such documentation may have existed at one time, it is more likely that the college simply lacked any formal, explicit policies pertaining to the matter. When assessing the administration of Jonathan Blanchard and, to a lesser degree, that of Charles Blanchard as well, the thin institutional record was supplemented by drawing from the personal values and practices of the college's first two presidents. This is less an option with J. Oliver Buswell, whose published writings and public persona bore minimally on matters pertaining to race and race relations. Unquote. Then, this damnable admission of the possibility that their denunciation of Buswell, which is at best summarized as an emanation from a penumbra, may well be proven wrong by new research. I continue reading their report, quote, Despite scanty institutional record-keeping, it is possible to share what little is known and to sketch in broad strokes a tentative overview of Buswell's administration while stressing the distinct possibility that subsequent research may nuance some of the following findings, unquote. Scanty, quote, little is known, quote, sketch, quote, broad strokes, quote, tentative, quote, nuance. This is the reason this article leads with the word denunciation. Denunciations are never convictions. Denunciations are not a function of any court of law. With denunciations, the accused is never permitted to face and respond to his accusers. In a denunciation, the evidence makes a mockery of judicial procedure. Under the rule of law, the accused is put on trial and evidence against him must be admissible. Testimony can't have been heard third, fourth, fifth, <laughs> or tenth hand. Pivotal evidence the task force gives supporting its denunciation of Buswell is testimony given verbally by an elderly pastor to a researcher concerning his recollection of conversations he had 30 years earlier, and there's nothing and no one to corroborate what he says. The man he accuses, J. Oliver Buswell, is long in the grave. And the researcher reporting what this man said to her admits her interview of the man was not recorded and no notes exist. Now then, about this conversation. The conversation with Buswell is recounted by a single man. That man's recounting of the conversation has no supporting evidence. That man's testimony against Buswell denies Buswell the right of facing his accuser and responding to his accusations. That man's testimony against Buswell is not subjected to any cross-examination. That man's testimony is recounted verbally to a researcher 
researcher over 30 years after the original conversation occurred. That man's testimony concerning what was said in the conversation 30 years earlier is then repeated by the researcher, and she does so admitting she didn't record the conversation or take any notes. To summarize, J. Oliver Buswell purportedly said something to a pastor back in the late 1930s who recounts what he remembers Buswell saying to a researcher 30 years later. That researcher reports what the pastor said to her back in the 1960s, and her undocumented report becomes the basis of a denunciation by men and women of a task force Wheaton's president, Phil Riken, and Wheaton's board of trustees, 90 years after the purported conversation is said to have occurred. But we're not done. Note, this testimony at the heart of the case against Buswell is from only one man and thus violates Scripture's command not to entertain an accusation against a man unless there are two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. This biblical command is repeated in the New Testament explicitly with reference to the officers of Christ's church. 1 Timothy 5.19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Well, some might say that in his functioning as the president of Wheaton, that J. Oliver Buswell was no elder. Back in 1992, Hudson Armitage, Wheaton's president from 1965 to 1982, accepted our invitation to fill the pulpit Sunday morning down in Bloomington, Indiana. He was staying with our family on Sunday, arriving home at our house after preaching at the final service. He took me aside to say he hoped he hadn't caused me any trouble. He explained a young female grad student had inquired whether he would be willing to mentor her as she finished her doctorate in higher educational administration and search for a job. She was aiming to be president of Christian Liberal Arts College. Dr. Armiting said he had responded to her by saying he understood the job of a president of a Christian college as a position of pastoral leadership, and thus he didn't believe it was appropriate for a woman to serve in this way. As Dr. Armiting said, it was the nature of Dr. Buswell's calling as Wheaton's president to serve as a shepherd of the students, faculty, and even trustees of the college. He was faithful in his responsibilities. Until now, no one has ever said otherwise. Beyond death, does not President Buswell deserve the same protection Scripture requires of us concerning the elders and pastors of our own church fellowships? But we're not in a court of law, are we? We're not in any ecclesiastical court either. Instead, we're reading the judgments of an in-house, quote, task force, unquote, quite obviously ingratiating themselves to the wokester mob. And it's the heart and soul of wokeism to establish guilt on the basis 
of a single accuser who refuses to allow his accused to face him personally. Now then, can we remind ourselves how Chairman Mao found it very much in his own interest to channel students' anger and rebellion to the end of solidifying his grasp on power? Students were his red guard, and behind their wrath he stood secure. He chose them, he appointed them, he thanked them. He required his courts of law to overlook their crimes against justice. The people crying down President Buswell should be condemned and removed from any position of leadership or responsibility. Trustees, administration, and faculty members, but start at the top. Their denunciation of Buswell bears some resemblance to the denunciations by Red Guard students of their professors during China's Cultural Revolution. It should be mentioned that after students' public denunciations of their teachers, it was common for their teachers to commit suicide. Rejoicing in God's kindness here, we can at least be relieved that J. Oliver Buswell Jr. doesn't have to suffer through this very public and shameful charade. But what of those still living who knew and loved him? And what of their children, who, as with me, knew and honored the man from a distance, having heard his father and father-in-law's respect for him? Go on social media and listen to the pain of souls watching this public shaming of one of their heroes, who was loved by their parents. When they themselves were children, Dr. Buswell was a regular guest in their homes. The report continues, quote, In this light, the dearth of black students under President Buswell seems less a reversal than the culmination of a trend that had been well underway for years before he arrived. Unquote. A long-term trend, which President Buswell was not responsible for. Think carefully about that one. Quote, under President Buswell, unquote. Remember how under President Charles Blanchard, the fault was the institution, it. Only with Buswell's assumption of the presidency in 1926 does individual responsibility become their theme. Two, Given their offering up of President Buswell as their sacrificial lamb and denouncing him alone, the statement above is a damning admission. A close reading of the report and its footnotes demonstrates there was no change in the absence of black students at Wheaton throughout the presidencies of both Charles Blanchard and J. Oliver Buswell presidencies, which together extended 58 years from 1882 to 1940. Continuing to read from the report, quote, This is not to say that there were no significant changes during the Buswell years, for at some point during his administration, President Buswell began to implement an institutional practice that prohibited black applicants from matriculating. And then a footnote. And I comment, don't miss the above footnote. For instance, that little phrase, and it's in the footnote, de facto. 
As pointed out a number of paragraphs above, this admission of theirs is relegated to a footnote in their report, making it even more shameful. They move on from the report, quote, in a rare instance, a handful of surviving records document private conversations among college officials about a relevant policy or practice. The episode in question began to unfold sometime in early 1939 when an African-American from Rhode Island named Rachel Boone applied for admission to the college for the 1939-1940 academic year. After Boone was denied admission, a young New Jersey minister named Wyeth Willard wrote to Buswell to request that he reconsider the decision. Unquote. And I comment, note that they say he reconsider the decision. By implication, President Buswell is here accused by the task force of himself being responsible for the decision. No evidence is given for this assumption. It would be perfectly natural for a pastor in New Jersey to write a college president about a decision he himself did not make, hoping he might be able to exercise his influence as the president to reverse that decision. This is how things work institutionally. And we can expect President Buswell knew he was in a pretty pickle because of his work of church reform and that he was likely to be fired soon, as indeed he was within months. In such a case, we would expect President Buswell to avoid any indication that he disagreed with his board over the admission of black students and to do his best to represent the board's wishes and policies, whether formal or informal. Does a president have to undercut his trustees, privately saying he thinks they're wrong, and thus parading his own moral superiority to constituents? They continue, Neither Willard's letter to Buswell nor the president's response survived. Unquote. In other words, we're back in emanations from penumbra territory. They continue, but the question of Boone's admission was brought to the attention of the executive council in mid-March. The minutes record Buswell's concern that, quote, the social problems were such that we could not provide for colored students on the Wheaton campus, unquote. I comment, what social problems? A reasonable man I comment what social problems a reasonable man would guess these social problems President Buswell was concerned about included things such as the opposition of parents to their co-eds fraternizing with black male students the prejudices of students against blacks well documented in the country and church at the time the antagonistic attitude toward any black student presence on campus where there had only been a handful for almost half a century, etc. Charitable men would assume President Buswell is seeking here to protect two things. His leadership of the college, yes, but more, the intellectual and emotional well-being of his black brothers and sisters in Christ 
who might have no clue what it would be like to matriculate at Wheaton, spending four years alienated and alone among northern whites who have never known a person who is black. At this point, I'm going to insert text that they have in a footnote, footnote 106. They say, he, referring to Buswell, added in this uh, council meeting of the trustees, he added that it was unnecessary, quote, to definitively go on record saying that we do not accept them, unquote. And I comment again, it's likely President Buswell is engaged in a painful balancing act wanting to move the college to begin accepting black students, yet knowing the opposition to this policy among his trustees, while being acutely aware he's likely to be fired any day, as in fact he was some months later. The report continues, quote, Willard was undeterred. He raised the matter in person two months later while Buswell was visiting Willard's home after preaching at his church, which led to a considerable correspondence between the two after Buswell returned home. Within two days of Buswell's departure, each man had written the other to follow up on the topic. Willard thanked Buswell for his, quote, sympathetic understanding of the problem we discussed, unquote, and then addressed what had apparently been the keystone of Buswell's position during their earlier conversation, Willard assured Buswell that if he checked with administrators at the Moody Bible Institute and the National Bible Institute, both of which admitted black students, he would find that, quote, there are no mixed marriages among the students, unquote. He continued, in his letter to Buswell, and this is again from the task force report, just as we have black and white keys upon the piano, which can be played harmoniously, unquote, Willard went on, quote, I believe that the two races can live harmoniously together, unquote. I comment, because Willard addresses this matter, is no slightest indication that it was President Buswell himself who wanted to exclude black students from fear of interracial attraction, dating, or marriage. Much more likely is that President Buswell had shared some of the concerns of parents and trustees with Willard, and that Willard was responding to those concerns. Of course his response was written to Buswell. After all, the racists weren't there in his home talking with him. He couldn't respond to them directly. This reminds me of an evening I spent with a retired military officer down in Memphis. The Board of Presbyterians Pro-Life was meeting at Second Presbyterian Church, pastored at the time by Dick DeWitt, and church members had offered us a place to stay for a couple nights as we did our work. The first evening, our host invited us into his living room for a drink and chat. After some small talk, he leaned forward in his chair and said he wanted to ask a question. Indicating he was opposed to abortion, he continued, quote, But what would you do if your daughter was raped by a black man and became pregnant? Unquote. It was September of 1986, and I responded, quote, What does him being black have to do with it? Unquote. That wasn't all I said but it was what I said first. 
I feel certain J. Oliver Buswell Jr. would have responded in a similar way. I've officiated an interracial wedding ceremony of a much-loved African-American man who was ordained to the eldership of our congregation. And again, I feel certain J. Oliver Buswell Jr. would have done the same. The task force report continues, quote, For his part, Buswell wrote to Willard to thank him for his hospitality and to assure him that he was continuing to think and pray about the matter. He had also consulted, quote, one of our trustees who I know is interested in the problem, unquote. The trustee to whom Buswell wrote the same day as Willard was Hugo Werdak, a prominent St. Louis businessman and a member of the Board of Trustees since 1927, by, quote, interested in the problem, unquote, Buswell meant that Werdak was opposed to the admission of black students to the college. Unquote. I comment. Hence, my defense of Buswell above. About to be fired, his attempts at something akin to shuttle diplomacy is expected between any institution's trustees and the institution's constituents, with the president in the middle. Are we so cynical as to assume the worst about him and his work, looking back on it almost a century later, basing our assumptions on our own jaded intuitions, motivated by fear of the mob? They continue, quote, in his letter to Werdak, Buswell recalled that the trustee had evidently expressed concern some years earlier when he mistakenly thought, quote, our Filipino students were colored, whereas at the time we had no colored students in the college, unquote. Continuing the report, assuring Word Act that, quote, I have no race prejudice in my heart, unquote, Buswell shared his opinion, quote, that for a small Christian school where the social contacts are so close, it would be better to avoid coeducation of the races, unquote. We'd be reassured if this quote included what President Buswell wrote in between, denying any prejudice in his own heart and saying it would be better to avoid coeducation of the races at small schools. Keep two things in mind. First, under President Buswell's leadership, Wheaton's enrollment exploded. So that at the time of his writing, the above, Wheaton was no longer a, quote, small Christian school. The high watermark of enrollment under Blanchard the Sun's presidency reached 337 students in 1925, the year prior to Buswell becoming president. Under Buswell's leadership, 13 years later in fall semester 1939, Wheaton was large, with an enrollment totaling 1,085. Social relations were not, quote, so close, unquote, as they had been under Charles Blanchard's leadership. Second, the statement above is made to the very trustee known to be opposed to Wheaton's acceptance of black students. Few of us want to have a period put at the end of ad hoc statements we have made at one time or another to our superiors about things we have a principled disagreement with them over. Further, if we're out to denounce our fathers, 
For the life of me, I can't figure out why the apostles escape our hissy fits. Isn't the apostle Peter ripe for having his name stripped from scripture and church history? For commanding his fellow brothers in Christ who are slaves, quote, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse, unquote, 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Do any of us still read our Bible? How confident we are, seated in our conceit of the modern, giving ourselves to the production of 122-page denunciations of men who led Christ's church a century ago, while we denounce no Christian ever or anywhere for their slaughter of their little babies by their regular use of hormonal birth control. Does it occur to us that future generations will write 244-page denunciations of us for our own cover-up of the sexual abuse of children and of students who are under our authority and protection, doing so in order to protect their predator, who is also under our authority but poses a threat to us. The report continues, quote, Holding to that view, he had made it a practice to advise black applicants to attend an all-black institution in Kentucky called the Lincoln Institute. His reason for writing now, he explained, was that he was under, quote, a considerable amount of pressure from certain quarters, unquote, to alter his admission stance. Were he to raise the question openly, whether with the trustees or the faculty, Buswell was convinced that, quote, the result would be an argument and a strong division of opinion, which is why his strategy heretofore had been to try to, quote, avoid the issue while quietly advising colored applicants to go elsewhere. The report continues, quote, Eight days later, Buswell again pressed Wordak to reply, noting, quote, I am trying to perform a difficult task, unquote. Another eight days later, Wordak finally responded, quote, while I have absolutely no prejudice against colored students, unquote, and for my part would be willing that they should be admitted, I do not think it would be wise to bring this matter up at this time. There are already a number of controversial matters before the board with more to come. It would be my counsel to keep out of all controversies so far as possible, even at the sacrifice of strong convictions, unquote. I comment, almost certainly President Buswell was pushing Trustee Wordack to accept a change in policy at Wheaton so that black students would have their applications accepted, and this in the midst of facing efforts within the trustees to fire him. Have we no slightest understanding or sympathy for President Buswell's predicament? The report continues, it may be doubted whether Werdak was genuinely open to admitting black students as he claimed in his letter, but he was not being disingenuous in referring to other, quote, controversial matters, unquote, that might warrant postponement. By the time of his reply, June 2, 1939, President Buswell's job was seriously in jeopardy. 
By the beginning of the year, there were rumblings of dissatisfaction among both the trustees and prominent alumni, many of whom worried that Buswell's constant embroilment in denominational conflicts, he had broken first with the Presbyterian Church and then subsequently from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, were reflecting poorly on the college, unquote, I comment. We are Christian brothers and sisters who will answer to our Heavenly Father for our own hypocrisies and sins. Know that. Remembering the warning of the Apostle James, James 3, verses 1 and 2, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. May God lead the president and trustees of Wheaton College to repent of their actions, making their repentance public, but not by keeping the name of the Buswell Library intact. My own suspicion is J. Oliver Buswell would be happy for the library to lose his name for the same reason John Calvin was pleased to be buried in an unmarked grave. It's been said, who builds to God and not to fame will never mark a building with his name. Go ahead, change the name. But issue a straightforward, manly retraction of your classless and disgusting smear of our esteemed and faithful brother in Christ. Not a few of our godly black brothers and sisters in Christ will respect you for it. I'm certain of this, and would be happy to put you in contact with them. And that's the end of the article. It's likely more articles will be published here on this subject. Thank you for listening. Please do us a favor. Tell your wife and children and the members of your congregation about this podcast. Forward it to them especially to those who may be alums of Wheaton College, may be considering applying there. Anyhow, please don't forget to support this work by clicking on the Patreon link at warhornmedia.com. This is Tim Bailey. Goodbye. Goodbye.